0: Good morning. It is good to be with you this morning, friends. Sometimes, God is severe with us. And his severity, he is kind. And as I was studying this passage, um, which is Joshua 23, by the way, if you want to turn there, I found myself uh, asking Who is sufficient for these things? The message of God is so much bigger than I can communicate with my words. and It's so much more glorious than I think we can understand fully, but we have to try. And so friends, uh, with that in mind, I have become convinced that I am completely impotent to communicate such glories. But I know someone who has the power to do it, so would you come with me and ask him for his help this morning? Pray for yourselves, pray for me. Let's approach the throne of grace one more time before we get into our text. God, you are the best storyteller, and that is the understatement of the century. You have told an amazing story, and we get to see parts of it. Thank you for recording it in your scripture. And thank you for uh, putting it on the hearts of our elders and our pastors to go through this book of Joshua. Lord, I pray that you would open our minds to understand the glory of your covenants, both old and new, and understand our part in the story. Lord, convict us where we need convicting. Convince us where we need convincing. And May the glory of your son and his covenant with us shine through. Use me to speak. Open our hearts. It's for the good of his church and for his glory that we pray. Amen. So we've had Easter in between the last time that we were in Joshua. So real quick, let's, let's remind you where we have been. Lots of the land has been taken. Several lots, in fact. And time after time after time, when Israel obeys God was faithful to keep his promise to them in the Old Covenant that if they obeyed, that he would go and conquer for them. And he did. Time and time again, he conquered for them. God was faithful. He kept his promises. And when we get to chapter 13, there's a stop in the conquering. And God says, Joshua, you're getting old. It's time to at least divvy up the land so that we can do that under your authority. And they'll finish conquering later. And so then we get several chapters, real page turners of God divvying up the land. What cities go to which tribes and the pasture lands around them because that's important to remember. We got the glorious talk about the, uh, the cities of refuge and the Levites that got to indwell them and why. Um, and we even got the people on the other side of the Jordan going back to their land because God had given them rest from their enemies. He was kind to them. They were faithful, and he was kind. Everybody's home, they have rest, and that is where we are picking up in Joshua 23. So a long time afterward, when the Lord had given them rest, given rest to Israel from all their surrounding enemies, and Joshua was old and well-advanced in years, Joshua summoned all of Israel, its elders and heads, its judges, its officers, and he said to them, I am now old and well-advanced in years. And you have seen all that the Lord your God has done to all these nations for your sake, for it is the Lord your God who has fought for you. Behold, I've allotted to you as an inheritance for your tribes for those nations that, from those rema- nations that remain, along with all the nations that I have already cut off, from the Jordan to the Great Sea in the West. The Lord your God will push them back before you and drive them out of your sight, and you will possess their land, just as the Lord your God has promised you. Therefore, be very strong to keep and to do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside neither from the left nor to the right hand, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of their names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations, and as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand, since it is the Lord your God who fights for you, just as he promised. What an amazing exhortation. I always get my ears perked up when, um, when a, a character in the Bible, a, a person, a leader, is about to die and they know it. Uh, in verse 14, we'll get there in a minute, but he says, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. He knows he's going to die. And this is what he has to say. Us young folk really need to listen to gray hairs more often. Myself included. They have important things to say, and as they get closer to death, they understand better what is important to say. And Joshua has something important to say. Remember what God has done for you. Now throughout most of the Old Testament and even a little bit of the New Testament, when somebody is telling an Israelite to remember, it's almost always the Exodus. Remember the Exodus. Remember how God mightily delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians. Remember how God fed you in the wilderness. Remember how he did this and did this and did this. Remember God's faithfulness then. And that's good. We should often be looking back to the start of where God started to deal kindly with us. That's just not what Joshua does here. Joshua instead says to look at your immediate history. Look at the things that God has done among you recently. Among you. Not among your fathers, but among you. You Israelites here today, God has used you to drive out these nations. God has kept his promises through you, do you remember? Do you remember one man of you putting a 1,000 to flight just like God said he would? Do you remember taking I? Do you remember taking Jericho? God is faithful, you need to remember that. There's a general principle there in that for us, it doesn't take long for us to think about how God has been kind to us as Christians to reflect on the good things that he has done for us, how he has been faithful to us. You just need the right set of lenses, the right perspective, even the hardest things, even the battles that we've lost has been God ministering to us good things. But again, that's not the point for Joshua, and Joshua has more to say. I say this a little tongue-in-cheek, but I interrupted his speech. He had more to say. With his positive exhortation of continue to do well because God has been faithful. Oh, how he has been faithful. Verse 11, he says, Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God, for if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them so that you associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. They will be a snare and a trap for you. A whip on your side and thorns in your eyes. If you're not imagining that, you're not reading this text right. A whip on your side and thorns in your eyes. Until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Know for certain God will do this. If you go and you break the covenant, this is how God will respond. He promised. God is faithful. We talked a little bit last week about how the old covenant had an if clause, that if you obey me, I will give you everything that I have promised to your father Abraham, and I will give you blessings upon blessings upon blessings. But if you disobey me, then I will bring cursings upon cursings upon cursings. In a moment, we're actually going to read some of those cursings, but this is the if clause reiterated. Joshua is reminding them. Verse 14, he continues And now I'm about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, that not one word has failed of all the good things that the Lord your God has promised concerning you. All have come to pass, not one of them has failed. from off the good land that he has given you. These are the words of a dying man. It's very, very important that they remember. Now, he pulls out something there that we don't tend to think about. The the promises are twofold. He's got good promises, and he's also got evil promises. Promises for their prosperity, for their conquering of the land, for them being, uh, that their, their flocks would be blessed, that their, uh, their crops would be blessed, everything would be blessed. But there's also evil promises. And again, he reminds them that God will be faithful to fulfill those as well. Let's go look at that so we can see what he's referencing. Just a few pages to your left, we've got Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy chapter 28. First 14 verses are about how he would bless them. And so we read, if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I have commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you above all the nations of the earth, and all these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you. These blessings will conquer you. If you obey the voice of the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you go in and when you come out. The Lord your God will cause your enemies to rise against you, to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. And he goes on, everything that you do will be blessed if you obey. These are the terms of the contract, the end user license agreement of the old covenant. Then we pick up in verse 15, which let's be honest, just like you guys reading end user license agreements, they read the first little bit and then they said accept. (sighs) So we read on a little bit longer. (laughs) Verse 15. If you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all his commandments and his statutes that I have commanded you today, then all these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city. Cursed shall you be in the field. Cursed shall be your basket and kneading bowl. Cursed shall be the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground. The increase of your herds and the young of your flock. Cursed shall you be when you come in and cursed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, frustration in all that you undertake to do until you are destroyed and perish quickly on account of the evil of your deeds because you have forsaken me. And we go on. The curses are actually much, much longer than the blessings. And Joshua is reminding them that this is the covenant, this is the contract that your fathers signed in the wilderness. This is the contract that we renewed, This is the contract to which you are liable that you must hold up your end of the deal. And know this, O Israel, you hold up your end of the deal and God will be faithful to what he said to do. If you obey, God will bless you just as he has been blessing you throughout the whole book of Joshua. And if you don't, God will be faithful. Let's flip over a couple pages to the right. We're going to look at the first chapter of Judges, just to kind of see how this turns out. Once Joshua goes all the way of the earth, or the way of all the earth, Judges chapter one starts off with a bang, with Judah and Simeon going up and fulfilling what God had commanded them to do. At the end of Joshua, we've got rest from all of their enemies. They're not fighting anymore. At the beginning of Judges, Judah says, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go conquer the rest of my land. I'm going to go. Simeon, come with me. And they go, and they are faithful, and they conquer. It says that they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek, they found Adonai Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites, and etc. And it tells about their conquests, and it's great. And then it talks about Caleb, another faithful man, the one of the spies who went into the land and saw that it was good and that God was gonna conquer it for them and about how he's dealing with his land. And it's excellent until we get to verse 27. Manasseh did not drive out the inhabitants of Bethshon and its villages, or Tanakh in its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, the inhabitants of Iblon, or the Megiddo, or the Canaanites that were dwelling in the land. Israel grew strong, and they put the Canaanites to forced labor, but they did not drive them out completely. Ephraim did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer, so the Canaanites lived in Gezer among them. Zebulun did not drive out the inhabitants of the Kitron, or the inhabitants of or the inhabitants of. Asher did not drive out the inhabitants. Naphtali did not drive out the inhabitants. And the Amorites pressed the people of Dan. Several tribes failed. And the rest of the story is sad. It's sad and it's infuriating. It's sad because they didn't get all of the good things that God had promised them because they themselves stopped short. They did not hold up their end of the contract. The if clause was detrimental to lazy people, to idolatrous people, to people who just would not go and fulfill everything that God had commanded them to. And it's infuriating because look at everything that God had done for them. For Manasseh to watch as Judah drives out the inhabitants of the land and see again a new, a fresh, and without Joshua that God is still being faithful and keeping his promises and to say, nah, we're all right. Oh, that's so frustrating. And then to read further about how (laughs) these people that they didn't drive out start to oppress them throughout the book of Judges. They start to become the enemies that play a main feature we talk about the Philistines, we're talking about the Amorites, people that end up becoming the primary antagonists throughout the rest of the historical narratives because of their faithlessness, which led to idolatry, which led to their destruction. Because God was faithful to uphold his end of the contract. In their faithfulness or faithlessness, God was still faithful. And he did just what he promised. That's heavy. And I'm not going to pretend that it's easy to swallow. God showed his wrath. And there's not a temple in Jerusalem for a reason, he destroyed them utterly. Woof. That was the old covenant. And in it, there was glory promised. In it, we have lots and lots of shadows and types that point forward to something better coming. There are plenty of men under the old covenant that saw their need for a savior, for something more. And God even gave them promises. People like David. David, who received the promise that one of his sons was going to sit on a throne for forever. You read some of the Psalms, And you think, David, how much did you actually know? It sure sounds like you knew a lot more than what you're letting on. It's certainly not coming from the old covenant, or at least I don't think it is. Maybe I'm just not seeing it. We read about faithful men understanding that there is something yet coming. And God progressively, through prophets, through priests, he starts to reveal a little bit of what that is. Until finally Jesus comes on the scene. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he does a couple of amazing things, but perhaps the one that I have the hardest time understanding is that he never sinned. Not once did he transgress the law, he fulfilled it completely, perfectly. We just celebrated Easter, and right before that, Good Friday. I don't think it's a coincidence that he got a crown of thorns. Makes you wonder after reading uh, Joshua's promise of condemnation if they disobeyed. Makes you wonder how far down his forehead that crown of thorns got. Thorns, thorns which represented the fall and the curse now fashioned into a crown and placed on the head of he who became sin. The king of the curse nailed to the tree. Cursed is he who hangs on a tree the Old Covenant says. Paul, looking back at that in Galatians, says he became a curse for us, speaking of the Jews. And and particularly, uh, all of the negative aspects, God was still faithful. He still had to punish sin and he still had to uphold his end of the deal. But he also upheld the people's end of the deal by keeping the entire law. And so we have this awkward tension of the fact that Jesus kept the law perfectly and also took the punishments fully. That he is deserving of all of the blessings and yet receives all of the cursings. And today we're going to take communion. And this is not supposed to be a communion sermon, but I can't help it. The new covenant gets established in Jesus' blood. He's got a new contract for us. And that new contract we talked about last week, it has promises of forgiveness of sins and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Those are things that we can hang our hat on. So, as much as this is a sermon on Joshua 23, we're actually going to spend the rest of our time in Ephesians. We're going to read a large chunk of it so that you can see the stark contrast between the if and the since. The if of the old covenant and the since of the of the new covenant. So turn with me, if you will, to Ephesians chapter 1. Jesus changed things. We're going to start in verse 3 of chapter 1, and we're going to read a big chunk, so hang on, it's going to be a ride. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose of his plan which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. You want to know what God is doing in the world? He is uniting things to Jesus. He is bringing everything together into Jesus. In him, If you have believed in Jesus, you have received a guarantee, a down payment, an engagement ring. The Holy Spirit has been given to you as a foretaste of the riches to come. It's just a taste. And this is all because you have put your faith, you have believed, you have trusted in Jesus. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God and, of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes and your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope which he has called you to, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also the age to come. God's work in raising Jesus from the dead shows his immeasurable greatness and power towards us who believe. And there's still more coming. Jesus has been set above every name. He is the king of kings. He is the ruler of all rulers because of what God has done in raising him from the dead. Easter matters, and it should be the greatest feast that we have. If you didn't feast last Easter, you need to make sure to do it next Easter. It is something worth celebrating. Jesus has risen from the dead, and God has made him ruler over all. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And chapter breaks are not your friend, because this is one continuous thought. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You, Christian, we're just like the Jews. Their covenant just pointed out the wrath that was upon them. We were in the same boat. We carried out the desires of our flesh, of our mind. We sinned just like our forebears, just like Adam and Eve. We turned away and we worshiped idols just like what the Jews did. We intermarried just like the Canaanites and we worshiped and gave ourselves to things that are disgusting and not worthy of our time. We were dead in our trespasses just like all of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and he has raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is one of the weirdest verses but do you believe that it is true because God raised Jesus and raised his body? You Christians who are members of his body have also been raised. Because Jesus in his physical body is somewhere, one where, in fact, seated seated in the heavenlies, you too, as his body, are present tense. Seated with him in the heavenly places. Does that change anything for you? It really ought to. But that's not the point. So we will move forward. God showing his riches towards us has joined us to Christ. He has raised us with Christ. He has seated us with Christ. It is by grace that you have been saved. So that, verse 7, in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not as a result of works so that no one may boast. This is the glory of the new covenant. It is not based on an if clause, it is based on a since clause. Since God has raised Jesus and joined you to him through faith, through grace, not of your own doing, but since he has done that, you are his. You are saved from the wrath to come. You are seated with Jesus in the heavenly places. And how do you know? Because you're wearing an engagement ring. Because the Holy Spirit himself dwells with you. You, are, you have assurance that God has forgiven your sins. And you have direct access to the Father. You're seated at his right hand. All of this because of Jesus' obedience. Since Jesus obeyed. All of this because of God's mighty works in raising Jesus from the dead, since Jesus has been raised from the dead, do we have any reason to doubt? Do we have any reason to look at what Jesus did, living in perfect obedience, dying on our behalf and taking our sins upon himself? Do we have any reason to look at that and doubt and say, oh, but I'm I'm a little bit worse than what you might think? To say that to the omniscient no, friend, cheer up. You're much worse than you think you are, and he died for you anyway. Before you had anything to bring to the table, he died for you. While you were still dead and smelled like it, he died for you. He took his, your sins upon himself. He took God's wrath that you earned, and he drank it till it was gone. And then... He rose from the dead. What a man. He took it all and he earned it all. And now, in the new covenant, we are joined to him. I think we can all understand why Jesus is King of Kings. He earned it. The hard part with us is often our understanding of our place in the story. Your place in the story is at Jesus' side, or maybe more accurately, as Jesus' side. You are part of his body. Because you are joined to him, you have been given all the benefits that he earned. Now, we don't see it yet. I don't know about you guys, but I am not in a resurrected body free from pain. But it's coming. We have this hope, and this hope is sure. Holiness in the new covenant is not a fragile thing. Under the old covenant, the first time we see somebody being killed, well, the first individual anyway, being killed because he broke it was because he was picking up sticks on the Sabbath. reading through the old covenant and seeing all of the cleanliness laws and all of the things that you had to do to make sure that you were clean, just so that you could go and offer a sacrifice, just so that you could be with your family and friends, holiness was kind of a fragile thing. And the chief reason that it was fragile is because it depended on you, or at least the Jews. Most of us are Gentiles here. We were never under the Old Covenant. But it depended on mankind in his sinfulness. Of course it was fragile. It was constantly being around the one thing that can wreck it. But under the New Covenant, holiness is no longer a fragile thing. Holiness depends entirely on Jesus. It's funny. uh, For a lot of my Christianity, I used to look at the communion bread when it was actual bread. And I'd be like, oh, but that's leaven. We're not doing it right. It's got air holes in it. Oh, no, <laughs> it's unclean. There's one little little instance of Jesus talking about leaven in a positive sense. He says that the kingdom of heaven is like leaven being added to three measures of wheat flour. Why three measures? I don't know. But what does leaven do? It leavens all of it. Under the new covenant, holiness is no longer a fragile thing. It is an invasive thing. It is something that spreads. The kingdom of God is his people. The kingdom of God is those that are willing to submit to the king and go and take the land that belongs to the king. And if the kingdom of God is like a little leaven added to measures of flour, we're expanding. We're not fragile, we're winning. We're not losing and hoping, oh, just a little bit of unholiness will break me down. Oh, no, we are going into the darkness and taking it. There's this beautiful passage where Peter has one of his shining moments right before having a terrible moment, <laughs> as is Peter's wont. Uh, Jesus asked them, who do people say that I am? And will they say that you're the prophet or maybe another prophet reincarnated? We're not really sure. Maybe, maybe John the Baptist raised from the dead. And Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, yes, Peter stands up and says, You are the Christ. Jesus says, Yes, you're right. And I will build my church. On this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of death will not stand against it. Think about with me just for a moment the picture he is painting. Gates don't move. How can gates overcome somebody else's army? Well, that army has to be invading. And if gates stand against an army that is invading and they stand past the invasion and the invading army leaves, then the gates have withstood. They've done their job, it's a defensive thing. What's the implication of that? That means Christians, we, are to storm the gates of death by going out into the falling world and bringing sinners to the light of the gospel and taking dead people through the power of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of the good news of Jesus, taking dead people to life. We are conquering death as part of Jesus' kingdom. We are being the leaven that goes and spreads in this entire world. Have you ever thought about the fact that the church is bigger than it's ever been? Christians, we are more numerous than we have ever been. Jesus' promise is true, and he is faithful to keep it. He is building his church. He is conquering. God is fighting the battles. God is bringing dead people to life. That's something only he can do. He is using us who preach the gospel to do it. Which leads me to the last verse in our passage here in Ephesians. This glory, this grace that is ours because of our attachment to Jesus Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith, not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. You don't get to boast about it. You didn't work for it. We, verse 10, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It would be very easy to, to do this kind of sermon talking about the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant and the not if but since and only talk about what Jesus has done. And it would be good for you. And it would be good for me to preach. Because we can never spend enough time reflecting on the glory of what Jesus has done for us and how we cannot earn the, the gift of God but God has yet freely given it We could spend hours and hours and days and days and weeks and months and years just preaching that message, and it would still be good for you. It's just that it would be incomplete. Because the reason that he has done this, apart from worldwide uniting everything to himself, is because you, Christian, are Jesus' craftsmanship. He made you and remade you, and he made you and remade you for a purpose. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You have a reason for being here. Jesus has predetermined a purpose. He's predetermined works, things that you get to do as a way of earning his favor, as a way of earning salvation. No, but rather as a way of fulfilling the thing that you were supposed to be doing in the first place. Your salvation, your stance before God is secure in Jesus. Now work. Go and do the things that he has prepared for you to do. And if you are confused about what those are, I want to make some things clear. This is not a um, general, find the will of God for your life. Not what I'm talking about this morning. But rather, hearkening back to Joshua, Joshua was telling them to be very careful to observe everything that God had commanded them to do. Again, because holiness under the old covenant was relatively fragile, it depended on man's obedience. That's not the case in the new covenant, but there are still things that God has commanded you to do. And I could jump over all of the New Testament and cherry pick a few of them for you. But since we are in Ephesians already, let's just read a few of them in Ephesians. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. For most of us, it's on the same page. Paul finishes laying out the glory of the new covenant, the glory of the gospel, or as much as you can in one book. And he says, I therefore, verse 1, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, etc. The command here is to hold together in unity. Not unity at all costs, sure, but that's not a caveat he makes here. This is unity with a particular flavor, though. It's uh, unity that comes from humility and gentleness, patience and bearing with one another in love. And it is unity that comes from eagerness to maintain unity. Reflect back on this week. No doubt you have met and talked with the people of God this week, you've had them in your homes at your table. Praise God can you say, looking at this command that you have obeyed it, this good work which God has prepared for you beforehand, can you say, yes, in humility, and yes, in gentleness? That's one I have to work on, my friends keep telling me. And yes, in love bearing with one another, and yes, with eagerness, I sought for unity. Can you tell me how? Don't actually, this is a monologue, don't interrupt my talk. I interrupt other people's talks in the Bible, but I'd rather you not interrupt mine. Uh, (laughs) Can you reflect on this and honestly say that you have? And if not, praise God, Jesus has grace for you. This is still what he wants from you. How are you going to do it next week? Let's read another one. We'll flip the page, staying in verse four though, or I'm sorry, chapter four. He goes on to talk about the new life and some of the things that we have to put away and things that we have to put on. 25, therefore having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor for we are members of one another. Don't lie, super simple, particularly to Christians. For we are members of one another. Are you lying to Christians? Stop it. Have you been telling the truth to Christians? Praise God. That is a good work that he has prepared for you. Now you're walking in it. We keep reading. uh, There's 29 is one of my favorite ones because it's one of the hardest ones, especially for youth. Let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. But only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. No doubt you have spoken this week. And no doubt you have said some things that have been good for people. That's what the word wholesome means. You think wholesome and you think about oatmeal. You think about chicken noodle soup. Things that are good for you. Things that build you up last time i talked to the youth about this i said that uh, you need to have chicken noodle soup coming out of your mouth and that's just not what i mean <laughs> but rather the spiritual elements of what you speak need to be good for people this is something you can get your hands on it's a command that means something how is your speech when you speak are you speaking in such a way that is good for the people that are you're speaking to Are the words that you're saying unwholesome? This isn't a verse that says, don't cuss. It's much worse than that, friends. This is a verse that's saying, only say things that are good for people. That's a much higher standard. Relatively simple to understand. Difficult to obey. This is a good work that Jesus has prepared for you so that you may walk in it, speaking things that are good for people. Then we get into chapter five and chapter six. Husbands, are you loving your wife the way that Christ loved the church? Can you look back at this week and show me how? In what way have you sacrificed yourself for her, for her good, her benefit? What are you doing to wash her with the water of the word? If you are not, praise God, there is grace in Jesus. What are you gonna do this week? How are you going to wash your wife with the water of the word? How are you going to die to yourself for her benefit? How are you going to love her like Christ loved the church? Wives, are you submitting to your husbands? Are you doing it the way that the church needs to submit to Jesus? Can you show me how? My wife is an incredibly submissive woman. And she's not in here, so I'm going to brag about her a little bit. It's not going to go to her head. We had an instance with, uh, with discipline for my two-year-old son where she did not want to discipline him the way that I wanted to. And I was not home at this particular moment. So she called me and said, what do you want me to do? And I said, this is what I want you to do. And she said, I do not want to do that. And I said, I know, this is what I want you to do. And she said, okay. And then she did it. That's how the church needs to submit to Jesus. Oftentimes, he calls us to things that we do not want to do, and we need to do it anyway. Wives, can you show me how? If not, praise God, there is grace in Jesus. How are you going to do it this week? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Hopefully, I said that loud enough that my children can hear it in the nursery. Children, have you obeyed your parents? Can you show me how? If not, praise God, there is grace in Jesus. How are you going to do it this week? And this is a sampling of the commands in the New Testament. And I want to reaffirm, because no doubt some of you are thinking, oh, this guy sounds kind of legalist. That is not at all what I am saying your salvation before the Lord is secure because Jesus obeyed. You will be raised from the dead if you trust Jesus on the last day because of what Jesus did. You are currently experiencing spiritual blessings with the Holy Spirit and you are currently in some weird way seated with the Father or seated with Jesus at the right hand of the Father now because of what he did, not because of what you do. Now, here's why he did it so that you would be able to come along and obey and work the works that he has prepared for you beforehand. So, do it. Be careful to pay attention to all that the Lord has commanded you, not with fear, not with fear of an if clause that takes you out of the covenant, but rather with love and gratitude because of the since clause. Since Jesus obeyed on your behalf, go and do the works that he has prepared for you. Go and seek to obey. And if you start with this sampling, we'll be in a much better shape next week. So friends, as we are transitioning into communion, I want to reiterate Paul's command there at the beginning of chapter four, be eager for unity. If you break down communion, it's with unity. Union. Now, When we do this, we're proclaiming a couple of things. We're proclaiming, one, Jesus' death, his burial, his resurrection, until he comes again. We are proclaiming what we trust in and why we get to have all these spiritual benefits in Jesus that we do. We're also proclaiming our unity to him. That because Jesus died, we are joined to him in his death. And because Jesus was raised again, we are joined to him in his resurrection. And because Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father, so too we are sitting with him. And that has one more implication because it's not talking about you as an individual. It's talking about the church. It is true of you as an individual. So far, it is true as the church. As a church, we are the body of Christ. Not just Frac, but capital C. All of us Christians join together because of what Jesus has done for us. And so when you eat of this bread and drink of this grape juice, uh, we are proclaiming unity together. You are proclaiming unity with one another in this room because of our unity with Jesus. Be eager for it. Be humble before it. And so far as it depends on you, pursue with eagerness, gentleness, humility, unity with one another. Friends, let's pray. And then we'll take communion afterwards. Father, we thank you for making such glory clear to us. And Lord, I pray that if I have spoken wrongly, that you would remove that from our minds and that we would worship you rightly. Lord, I pray that you would cause us to walk in the good works that you have prepared for us, that you would make us eager for unity, that you would make us love our wives, that you would make uh, the wives submit to their husbands and children obey their parents. I ask that you would cause us to obey the commands that you have given us. Not so that we can earn your favor, that's impossible, but rather because Jesus has given it as a gift. Lord, help us to love you rightly in a way that is palpable. Help us to obey you and to praise you for it. We pray, amen.